My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. So if you are visiting, uh, a special welcome to you. It's a pretty cool place. Um, love this church. A couple things. We have communion today, and one of our elders, uh, Bruce Cook, is going to lead us in our um, time of communion after I'm done with the message this morning. So always look forward to that. And um, God, God has a cool word for us this morning that will lead right into that as well. So excited about that. Um, also, I shared last night that this is... Um, basically our six-month anniversary since John has retired. Yeah. I, I think I'm still on probation with the elders and trustees, so pray for me. Hopefully I'll make it. I think they put me on a five-year probation, but, you know, we're six months in, so, so far so good. But what's cool about that and what I want you to hear is um, thank you from, my, from myself and from my wife and from our girls. You guys have been incredible. What just, uh, you've been so good to us and so kind and so loving and so caring. And there's a ton of great churches, and we're just, we're one of them. And I just want to thank you on behalf of my family um, for it being such a great six months uh, of transition. So, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I think I got all the formalities out of the way. We got a lot of ground to cover, which I feel like I say that every week, right? I always, you know, anyway, it's like, oh, I need to edit. It's like, no, that's too good. I can't edit that. I'll just talk faster. That'll solve all my problems. I've been doing that for six months. But I think you guys are learning my cadence, right? I hope. Let me open with this. We are, as you know, in Mark chapter 2 now. We finished Mark chapter 1 last week. So we're going to be in Mark 1. We're going to, or Mark, you know, we're going to be in the book of Mark. We're going to be out of the book of Mark. And we'll be in and out and in and out. And it's going to be fantastic. And I hope you enjoy the ride. So let me open with this. Has anybody ever heard of something called the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Some? You might have heard some things from it without knowing that this is where it came from. But the Westminster Shorter Catechism was written during the Reformation. It was started in 1646. And it was finished around 1647. And... It was put together by uh, the Westminster Assembly. And what that was, it was a synod of English and Scottish theologians and laypersons. And they intended to bring the Church of England into greater conformity with the Church of Scotland. Its purpose was to educate children and new Christian believers in the faith. It was based on something called the Larger Catechism, which was intended for use by ministers or pastors as they taught faith or taught the faith to their congregations in their preaching. The shorter catechism is presented in a really cool question and answer format, which was popularized by Martin Luther as a way to help children learn the meaning of the material rather than simply memorizing things like the Lord's Prayer or the Ten Commandments or the Apostles' Creed. And that had been the practice prior to the Reformation was just a lot of memory. And so the catechism was in a Q&A format. The Shorter Catechism is composed of 107 questions and answers, and it mimics something called the Heidelberg Catechism. The first 12 questions of the Shorter Catechism uh, are questions about God and, and Creator, or God as Creator. Questions 13 through 20 deal with original sin and the fallen state of man's nature. Questions 21 through 38 are about Christ the Redeemer and the benefits that flow from His redemptive work on the cross. The next set of questions from 39 all the way to 84 are about the Ten Commandments, which is really cool. If you get a chance to look this up, I encourage you to do so. You will learn a lot of doctrine, real healthy doctrine. 
Questions 85 through 97 teach us about the sacraments of baptism and the Holy Communion. And the final set of questions from 98 to 107 teach and explain the Lord's Prayer. I'm not going to post it yet. Does anybody know the first, and it's the, probably the most famous question in the Shorter Catechism? The first question, does anybody know that by chance? Put it up on the screen. I think we have it. What is the chief end of man? Has anybody heard that? It's from this Shorter Catechism. Like, What is the chief end of man? It's question number one in the Shorter Catechism. And there's a great answer. The answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What a great, great thing for us to, to strive for, to aspire to. Our chief end, the Catechism says, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I like that. Question two, it's not posted, but question two says, What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? That would make sense that that would be the next question, right? What rule hath God given to direct us how we are to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever? And the answer is the Word of God. The answer to that question too says, The Word of God which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. Question three. What do the scriptures principally teach us? That's a, that's a perfect next question from number two. What do the scriptures teach us then? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. What a great first three questions. And then off they go to questions all the way up to 107. John Piper says this, and it'll be on the screen as well. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Let that sink in. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. How satisfied are we in the Lord? If the chief end of man is to enjoy Him forever and to glorify Him, I think this is absolutely perfect. Is God glorified? How satisfied are we? In the Lord. In order for us to be most satisfied in Him, we must fully know and understand Him. That would make sense, right? If we want to fully be satisfied in Him, we must fully know and understand Him, which is what Christ came to accomplish, thankfully. But there's a flip side to that. There's a flip side to that statement. If we're to be most satisfied in Him by fully knowing and understanding Him, the flip side, one could argue, is the opposite. That when... If or when we do not fully know and we do not fully understand our Lord through Christ, then He is glorified less because we are satisfied less. I don't like the sound of that. But it makes sense, doesn't it? Open to Mark chapter 1. We're going to skim Mark chapter 1 so that we can jump into chapter 2. So I'm just going to hit a few things in Mark chapter 1 just to kind of get us to where we're at in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. So Mark, you don't have to, you, don't, you can follow along if you want. I'm just going to skim. So Mark 1 opens up and we're presented with Jesus. So we, we see John the Baptist and saying, prepare the way for Jesus. And Jesus gets baptized by John. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. God's voice from heaven saying, this is my son. And boom, he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He comes away from that and he goes and he starts preaching. He goes and recruits a couple disciples, James and John and Peter and, and Andrew. 
or Simon and Andrew. And then he goes into the synagogue and he teaches and he preaches and then he's, he uh, um, casts out some demons. Then you get to verse 29 and he goes to the mother-in-law of Simon and he heals her from her fever. And then the crowds show up, the whole city, right? We talked about this last week where a couple thousand people show up at his front door, right? And he heals a bunch of people and casts out a lot of demons. Then he goes away to pray and says, I came to preach. So that's why I went to pray. And then he heals a leper and boom, we're in chapter 2. So far, so good. So far, so good. Let's start off verse 1, chapter 2. We're going to read this and then we're going to pray. When he had come back to Capernaum, so Jesus had left Capernaum, so he had come back several days afterward, and it was heard that he was home. And many gathered together, so there was no longer room. We've seen this before, not even near the door. And he was preaching. He was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet or the mat on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there, reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Imagine. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way, within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Get up and go home. And so he did. He picked up his pallet in the sight of everyone. And everybody was amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Let's pray. Lord, we come here this morning like we do every weekend. We want to hear from you. We trust that we will. And Lord, I just pray that we would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us. And that we would trust you with every inch and every fiber of our being. Because you love us and you care for us and you have good things in store for us. If we would be obedient and listen to you. So, Father, just open us up. Make us obedient vessels of yours. In Jesus' name, and everybody said. Those 12 verses are pretty cool. But there's, there's some stuff going on underneath, and if we, if we don't pay attention, we'll miss it. And we're going to unpack that. There's two things we want to cover today. We're going to cover the work of Jesus, which is a focus on a blessing. A focus on blessing. And then the warning of Jesus, which is a focus on blasphemy. And I want to be careful because... I'm, I'm trying, I think PJ would use the word sting. I don't, it's not meant to sting. When we get to the second part, which is going to be towards the end, it's not meant to sting. If the Holy Spirit brings conviction, then I'm, I'm okay with that. That's between you and God, right? Not you and me. Um, but it's not meant to sting. It's meant to encourage. It's meant to enlighten us. But it, we're going to have some fun with number two, I hope. All right, so the first one, the work of Jesus, the blessing. I don't know about you and your relationship with Jesus, but my hope is that he's been a blessing in your life. And that you and I are indeed glorifying God and enjoying him forever. I hope. Perhaps you're a newer Christian and you're still navigating how this relationship with God through Christ is supposed to work. Or perhaps you're like me, a believer of 36 years, and you've walked with Jesus for quite some time and you draw upon that relationship in your daily life. For what it's worth, and I can say this with full-blown conviction, I don't have a single regret since giving my life to Christ 
at the age of 15. Not one. As I have probably stated more than once already from this pulpit, my life has indeed been an enormous blessing, even with all the hardship. As I continue to allow the work and the person of Jesus to penetrate my life, the only thing resembling regret over those 36 years of following Jesus was not taking more time to know Him more fully so that I could enjoy Him more fully and glorify Him more fully. Make sense? Turn to Psalm 16. Turn to Psalm 16, 7 through 11. It's a great reminder. Psalm 16, starting in verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Oh, I like that. This is for all of us. For all of us. In Mark chapter 1, he wastes very little time in Mark 1 introducing us to Jesus as we've already gone through. And he shows us the activity of Jesus. And by way of reminder, Jesus was preaching. He was recruiting disciples. He was teaching in the synagogue. He was healing the mother-in-law in chapter 1 from a fever. Healing the leper. Healing the city that's standing at the door and casting out demons. And of course, what we focused on last week, we see him prioritize prayer because his primary goal and his primary purpose was to preach the gospel. So we conclude chapter 1, and Jesus leaves the crowds, and he leaves Capernaum. And as we saw in Mark 2, verse 1, he comes back to Capernaum. So he's out and about preaching throughout Galilee before he comes back in in chapter 2. And so everything so far is so good. He hasn't really ruffled any feathers. Up to this point, he hasn't been in any hot water. But Jesus comes back in chapter 2, and he does what? He turns up the heat. Let's take a look at that in a second. In order for us to fully thrive, in order for you and I to fully thrive as disciples of Jesus, we must fully understand who He is and fully embrace all that He is and has for you and I in order for us to thrive. The new piece being introduced to this puzzle in chapter 2 can be found in the middle of our passage this morning, but let's start at verse 1. Go to Mark 2, verse 1. This is where we're going to find this new piece to this puzzle that's being put together by Mark. Verse 1, when he had come back several days later, he's at home, many were gathered, there's not much room, and he was speaking, he's preaching. We know that already from chapter 1. And they came and they bring to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they dug and opened, they let him down. In verse 5, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? He didn't heal him. He says, Your sins are forgiven. Well, this is new. This is, we don't see that happening in chapter 1 yet, right? So this is the new piece to the puzzle. He says, Your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes were sitting there, and they're reasoning in their hearts, and reasoning means they're debating. That means their minds are going crazy. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. 
who can forgive sins but God alone? They answered their own question. Right? So this is a new piece of the puzzle. It's not just about the paralytic. That's important for sure. But he is speaking with authority. Mark returns us to Capernaum. And this is the first of five narratives. This is the first in a sequence of five narratives or short little stories that he offers into the insight of the authority of Jesus. So verses 1 through 12 is the first one. It starts out as being just another healing, but it unexpectedly reveals to us Jesus' true identity as being God and the authority that he has. That's the first one. That's verses 1 through 12. In Mark 2, 13 through 17, the next five verses, he, in, a, in a very unprecedented move, Jesus calls a man of ill repute, a man of bad company, a tax gatherer to be one of his disciples, to join his band of followers. So that's 13 through 17. Oh, you're not supposed to do that. And then after that, in verses 18 through 22, he messes up their whole thoughts on fasting. And then after that, in 23 through 28, he gathers food on the Sabbath. Not supposed to do that. And then after that, and getting to Mark chapter, or chapter 3, in verses 1 through 6, he heals on the Sabbath. Well, you're not supposed to do that. And then in 3, 7 through 12, Mark concludes and wraps this all up. He concludes the series of stories with a summary of Jesus' authority over hostile powers, both physical and spiritual, and a second confession from demons that this is indeed the Son of God. And so this just begins this whole thing about Jesus' authority and Jesus' power. Essentially what Mark wants us to know, what he's articulating at this point for his readers is this, that Jesus and only Jesus is the mediator between God and us. That's what Mark wants us to know. This is the mediator. We read this either last week or the week before, 1 Timothy 2.5. There's one God, and there's one mediator. It's Jesus. That's it. Mediator is a combination of two Greek words. I don't even know how to pronounce them. One means middle, the other one means to go to go in the middle, right? That's what a mediator does. One who goes between differing or contending parties to reconcile them and who represents each party to the other. That's what a mediator does. We get the word mediation, right? The need for a mediator between God and men arises from our fallen state, the fallen state of man because of sin. Man is now a rebel in his sin. His sin against his creator has brought him under divine condemnation. He has no recuperative or restorative power within him. And therefore cannot make amends for his guilt or reverse his depravity. Imagine. Imagine being in that place with no hope. No way out. It's like the haunted mansion, right? There are no windows and no doors. You can't get out. Without a mediator that has the power to address these deep needs, which is what Mark wants us to know, the power to forgive sins because he's God, without a mediator with the power to address these deep needs, every one of us must perish. Where we were once hopeless, we are, not now, we are now not only hopeful, but we can be assured. We have the assurance of our salvation. We have the assurance of our standing in, with God. It's not just that we're hopeful, we have the assurance, wow, to go from a complete state of hopelessness to a complete state of assurance and certainty. In 
Human affairs, the work of a mediator, usually involves working out a compromise by inducing each party to modify their original position. So it's like Jesus saying, God, are you sure? Like, really, can you kind of lighten up a little bit? And then, you know, hey, Doug, you know, can you kind of step up your game? And maybe somewhere in the middle you guys can meet and everything's going to be cool, right? That's human affairs modifying our original position. In the case of a mediator between God and men, there can be no place for negotiation or compromise. None. What God demands is what God demands. For it to be any less than that would not make him God. Not a God that I'd want to serve. But he got it wrong the first time? The claims of God over sinful men are absolute. In this case, the mediator must completely completely vindicate and satisfy God and at the same time justify sinners. Such a work demands a unique person. Really? Of course. Thus, in Scripture, the title of mediator is given only to Christ as we saw in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. A mediator intervenes between two parties and must be acceptable to both and capable of fully representing both. God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever, that catechism says in question 21, answer 21. God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. As such, he is capable of being God's representative to man and our representative to God. He and only he is able to do that. We're so privileged. We know that guy. Like this guy, we know that guy. I'm excited to know that guy. I hope you are too. He is the efficient peacemaker who brings men back into relationship with God. Thank you. He does this by rendering satisfaction to God as the substitute of his people. All contact between God and us is through this mediator. Check this out. We, mankind, or God comes to us through him. Hebrews 1.3. God comes to us through him. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down in the highest power place, the right hand of the majesty on high. So God comes to us through him. And then we, what? We have to go to God through the same guy, through Jesus. Check out John 14.6. Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to him but through me. Nobody. Over the years when I've had a chance to share the gospel with people, people think that's a little narrow-minded when I've shared with people. And I say, narrow-minded? Are you kidding me? God's made it crystal clear. Thank goodness that we don't have to figure things out. Like, which, which door? It's like, you know, the price is right. Do I do door number one, door number two, door number, or let's make a deal, whatever that is, right? Oh, it's like, no, no, we're making this real simple. You don't even have to guess. God took all the guesswork out of it. I think that's gracious of God to do that. I don't think it's restrictive and narrow-minded. It's clear. I lost my place. Oh, here I am. The role of this mediator has a threefold office. And some of us may know this. And that is the role of prophet, priest, and king. And this is exactly what we get in this passage if we look closely. Otherwise, we're going to focus on the paralytic. We're going to focus on the four guys with the faith. And we're going to, oh, he got healed. And the four guys lowered him through the roof. That's all good stuff. Let's look. Where do we find prophet, priest, and king? 
So he came back from Capernaum in verse 1. A lot of people are in the room. And what's he doing at the end of verse 2? He's preaching. That's the role of a prophet. He was speaking to them. Jesus was speaking, fulfilling his role as prophet, bringing truth into our lives. And they came, they bring a paralytic, and in verse 5 he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Make an atonement. That's priest. That's Christ as priest. So we see him as prophet in these 12 verses, and now we see him as priest. He forgives sins. And then in verse 10, after he says, Your sins are forgiven, get up, pick your pal to walk. In verse 10, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, get up and walk. And that's king. So we see prophet, he's preaching. He's forgiving sins as a priest. He mediates for us. He makes atonement for us. And he is our king. He has authority in our lives. If we don't engage Jesus in all three of those capacities, it's going to be hard to glorify God and let him satisfy us if we misunderstand who Jesus is and what he needs to be and should be in our lives. Does that make sense? What's really cool is look how, look how this whole passage ends in verse 12. And he got up, he takes his pallet, he splits, and what? Those who were around Jesus were all amazed and were glorifying God. We've never seen anything like this. Man, I hope when we encounter Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, that we are amazed and we glorify God and we walk away saying, wow, I've never seen anything like this. I never, never, never want to lose it as a church or as a follower of Christ. I want to be amazed by him. We should be amazed by him because he is indeed amazing. When we engage Christ as our prophet, as our priest, and as our king, I think we'll be amazed. I think we'll glorify God. Because we've never seen anything like this. Prophet. Let's talk about that. Christ executes the office of prophet by revealing to the church, by his word and by his spirit, the whole will of God in all things concerning two things. Our salvation, clearly, and our edification, which is our maturity, our fullness in Christ. That's what Christ does. That's how he executes the office of prophet. He reveals to us by his word and by his spirit the whole will of God. Acts 3, 22 and 23. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Wow. What a great verse. That's the role of prophet. Let's talk about role of priest. Christ executes the office of priest by a couple things. His once offering up of himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God, long-winded, and two, his continual intercession for us. So he, right? He steps in as our sacrifice. That's a one-time deal, dying on the cross, rising again, and then continual intercession for us. Romans 8, 31 through 35 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who's against us? Right on. He who did not spare his own son, this is the one-time thing, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against us? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who now does what? 
who also intercedes for us. Who also intercedes for us. So he died for us and he intercedes for us. That's his role as priest. A one-time thing and a continual thing. Even before he healed the man's body, Jesus spoke peace to the man's heart and announced that his sins were forgiven. Forgiveness of sins is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need that we will ever have. It costs the greatest price that anyone will ever pay. And it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. Can I get an amen? It's not about the paralytic. The office of king, the role of king. Christ executes the office of king by subjecting us to himself. We are his subjects in ruling and defending us and restraining and conquering all of his and all of our enemies. Revelation 17, 14 says this, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and the chosen and faithful subjects of his. That's kind of my introduction in many ways. So what's my point in all that? What's my point? If indeed our chief aim is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, then it is imperative that we recognize Christ as the one and only mediator who functions as our prophet, who functions as our priest, and who functions as our king. When we engage Him any differently, we're missing it. And I believe when we do engage Him as our prophet, priest, and king, we will, like verse 12, be amazed and glorify Him and say, man, I've never seen anything like this. So it blows my mind about scriptures. I continue to read it and just blows my mind. I continue to be marveled by God. How do you and I wrestle with these three roles of Jesus? How do you and I wrestle with this? Prophet, what truth is he teaching you? I hope it's not just here on Sunday mornings. And I, I, I hope it's okay. I'm, I'm probably just going to keep beating you over the head with that one, right? You know, I can't be the only truth that you hear every week. Does that make sense, right? It just can't. We need to take responsibility and and, and make sure that if Christ is our prophet, what truth is he teaching me? Am I in his word? Because on the opposite side, where we're not in his word, we begin to believe lies. God speaks truth to us because we got lies that sometimes drive our life. And it's shameful. And we believe things we shouldn't believe. And God's truth sets us free, Scripture says. What about priest? How is he interceding for me? Do we trust that God is interceding? Do we go to him? 1 John 2, 1 says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate. So he, he intercedes for us, as Romans 8.31 said, which we already read, and he's also an advocate for us. He represents us to the Lord. It's like a lawyer term, right? We've hired somebody. We hired Jesus. Do we go to the guy we hired and say, man, can you speak on my behalf? I'm in trouble. So how do we let him perform his priestly functions in our lives, or do we do it by ourselves? Oh, I don't want to go to Jesus. I'm embarrassed. He'll be ashamed of me. And he's like, are you kidding me? I covered all that stuff, man. Trust me, there's nothing, nothing, nothing that we can bring before the Lord where he's like, oh, really? This is new for me. I don't know what to do. G- give, me, give me a couple days. I'll get back to you. Right? There's nothing. Nothing. We need to go to him as our priest and let him intercede for us. King, if he is indeed king and he's large and in charge, how am I doing as his loyal subject? Am I obeying him? Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, Jesus, 
May he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Are we doing his will? God's made it. He's made that a possibility. He's made, we are capable of that. Otherwise, he wouldn't ask us to do it. And it's pleasing to him. Are we allowing Christ to be our king and our priest and our prophet? So now the part that might get a little pointed. I don't think it will, but it might. The warning of Jesus, this whole idea of blasphemy. In verse 7, let me read verse 7. When he says, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. On another occasion in John chapter 10, the Jewish leaders wanted to stone Jesus because, as they said, you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Well, I, I am. I don't really have a choice. Right? I'm not making myself out to be God. I am God. Jesus affirmed his deity in our passage for today, not only by forgiving the man's sins and healing his body, but also applying to himself the title Son of Man in verse 10, so that you may know that the Son of Man, it's the first time it's used in Mark. The Son of Man is used 14 times. This is the first time in Mark's Gospel, 14 times in the Gospel, and he uses it 80 times in all four of the Gospels. And it's a messianic title that we find in, in, in the book of Daniel. And so the Jews would have interpreted it just that way. Blasphemy. They called Jesus a blasphemer. Whoa! Can you imagine doing that? These are the scribes that are supposed to know the Word of God. So what is it? In the biblical context, blasphemy is an attitude of disrespect and is directed against the character of God. What do we do in his role of prophet, priest, and king, that at times is disrespectful to God's character. In the Old Testament, blasphemy always means to insult God, either by attacking him directly or mocking him indirectly. Blasphemy was punishable by death, by stoning. And blasphemy is rooted in one of the Ten Commandments of not taking the, the Lord's name, who he is, in vain speaking things about God which are not true, engaging God in such a way. These scribes are engaging Christ in a way that's not true. And so who are the true blasphemers in this passage? It's not Jesus. Often translated, the word blasphemy is often translated to despise. Listen to this. It frequently occurs in the context where Yahweh's own people, this is the stuff that might be a little pointed, call into question his trustworthiness or his faithfulness, and so despise him, or they blaspheme him by their unbelief and rebellion. I'm guilty. I'm sorry. I imagine I'm not the only one in this room that's guilty of that at times. And so then we blaspheme the character of God for who he is in our lives. Thomas Aquinas defines blasphemy, I love this, as a sin against faith. And so sometimes we wrestle with stuff for a long time and we're just not allowing Christ to be our prophet, to be our priest, and to be our king. And so we are in a blasphemous state. Does our own view of Jesus, like the scribes in our passage, does our own view of Jesus make him any less than exactly what he is? No. But the danger with that is, not only can it lead to blasphemy, 
but it's surely going to make us a lot less than we're designed to be and a lot less than he desires for us to be. Here's what's cool as we wrap this up. Look in verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, it starts off with why. The scribes say, why? Why does he speak that way? Does it resonate for them, right? Why does he speak that way? In verse 8, Jesus aware of the Spirit that they were reasoning, what does he use the words? That way. He uses the same words. Why does that... So they say, why does he speak that way? And Jesus says, why? If you look at the, uh, in the middle of, uh, was it verse, uh, gosh, I'm lost here. Yeah, he says, why are you reasoning about these things? In other words, why are you reasoning that way? So they say, why do you speak that way? And he says, why do you reason that way? Why do we reason in a way that in reality is blasphemous? When we don't engage Christ for all the things that he's come to be and is, as our prophet, as our priest, and as our king, and Christ is saying to us, why? Why do you debate these things in your heart? Believe, trust, follow, obey. Does that make sense? This is heavy stuff, I think. Is Jesus your prophet? His truth is designed for our salvation and edification, our maturity in Christ. Is Jesus, our prophet. How are you handling his truth? Is Jesus your priest? He intercedes for us. He's our advocate. Are you turning to him and trusting him with all aspects of your life? Is Jesus your king? His rulership over your life should be evident. And by the power of his word and his spirit, we submit to him and to his will.